Welcome to the podcast, A Colored Girl Speaks, meditations on race and other magical things, a collection of personal essays on race, culture, and politics through the prism of identity, memory, and history, an intimate and often painful commentary on race in America and the way forward. Essays are by Andrea Hunter and are narrated by Tierra Moore. So, at last, this colored girl speaks. Episode 3, The Rich Davises. Prologue. In 1939, the renowned photographer, Marion Post Walcott, took pictures of Homestead, Florida, right by where my granddaddy settled, to document the farm laborers and living conditions for the United States Farm Security Administration. When I found more than a dozen of these photographs online, I studied them, looking for us. Among the streets I knew, paved with pressed dirt, I walked the scenes, comparing reference points 80 years later, using my childhood memories. The Negro quarters would become Blacktown, which is how I knew it as a girl. Front Street, the main business street district, with its barbershops, restaurants, rib shacks, and juke joint bars, and other notorious establishments. The next block over was the church home of my grandmother, St. Paul Missionary Baptist Church, where I was baptized, which boasted white brick and sandstone with steeple outstretched to the heavens and a clanging bell to call to worship. Migrant workers lived backed up to the canning factory, and the Negro quarters included aluminum flat roofs, wood houses, and long gang houses of the type that were found during slavery days. Condemned houses in which Negroes lived, the legend read. Standing alongside one of these leaning structures were two girls with dusky black skin, shift dresses, and no shoes, feet wide and flat, covered in a powdering of dust, with plaited hair in a kind of bantu knots. New shotgun rental houses with the legend that read, Better Negro Housing, which in the decades to come would be home to the families of my classmates. Though just a few turns of a road away, the big house, the Davis homestead, my ancestral home, where my mother was born and I was raised, is not photographed. Black migrant and farm laborers busied the flat landscape farms of tomatoes and crawling in pole beans, here captured in still life. Looking no different than the farm laborers when I boarded the field buses at the L&M store for my own day's work 
as a middle schooler. The workers stood for their pay at the day's end, with bodies that wore both weariness and satisfaction, just as I had seen them. I knew the quietness of talk that could erupt into laughter as the pickings were counted and weighed. I knew the field clothes, a discordant aesthetic, now with dusty sweat, and the brimmed hats and the skirts of old women that covered ankles grown thick, a human and textile mosaic. Still, I search. I want to see someone I remember, a face worn and old when I knew them captured in youth here. But Walcott keeps her black subjects safely away. The details of the faces elude the viewer, and several subjects' backs are turned or have their head to the side and their gaze directed elsewhere and away from Walcott and the lens. In frustration, I imagine a black subject to be photographed by her once showed all that was there, Walcott having asked to see such a thing. But gone was the non-emotive expression or deferent smile. In what Walcott saw then, she could not bear and remain the woman she imagined herself to be, having seen what was beneath the black mask, not constructed for her comfort, but for the subject's survival. Without fear, she embraces her child subjects. Photographed beautifully are the girls with Bantu knots and two boys, maybe seven or eight years old, out front of a grocery store in the Negro quarters, giving off an assured swag. I see the joy and the deprivation within them, just as my father lived as a boy, engendering a worldliness of character that belies their age and pain, and I see us. The Rich Davises. They called us the Rich Davises, my mother said. Her eyebrows raised, and then her eyes narrowed to signal the authenticity of her statement. The moniker swirled envy and esteem in a way that black folk are especially good at doing, being experts at cutting with a sweet tongue. My mother knew this, we both did, and we smiled. Now, it was a cow that triggered this revelation, the last chapter in a meandering account of my mother's childhood memories. The cow, like the family moniker, had come up without any forethought, but rather each arrived on scene on the way to saying something else. At this telling, my mother was among the surviving three Davis children, 
and her story began thusly. There was a cow for sale in the Redlands, and Daddy was determined he would buy it. He hitched the horse, named Dan, to his trailer. Show enough, Daddy returned home with the cow, she said. He wanted to make sure his children had milk. Milk, cream, was plentiful thereafter, and churned butter for the cakes that accompanied most Sunday dinners. His children never went hungry, I was told with pride. So, the cow joined the menagerie of roosters, chickens, ducks, the horse named Dan, and the pig that was bought yearly and kept at a communal pig pen at the west end of Lucy Street, the future site of the notorious Lucy Street Bar. There, too, was Ticolata, the Ford Model T pickup, so named because of the sound it made when driven. Eight of the Davis children were born on this homestead, first housed in a one-room wooden structure with corrugated aluminum roof, common in the Negro quarters, while the big house, as the children called it, was being built by Mr. Walker, a colored builder. Finished in 1935, the year before my mother was born, it is where she and I were raised. The big house, rectangular in shape, set on a one-half-acre plot, its front and back door in direct line with one another, an architectural expansion of a shotgun house made for running through, though no child would dare to. The inside walls were beveled horizontal wood panels with the living and dining rooms divided one from another by columned half walls, the elegant work of a colored craftsman, now unknown. A large black potbelly stove set in a square kitchen. The chute's remnants left a square patch I long pondered over before asking its origins. Slide-up windows on either side of the house, two together, then one and one, creating cross breezes in the near-tropical heat. And that old lean-to would become a quilt house, and later, a tool shed that smelled of fertilizer, oil, and dirt. An odious warning as I peered into his darkness to get a glimpse of the feared. The bedrooms, all flush left, went the length of the house, and the open-air front porch was enclosed after the 1945 Homestead hurricane, clocking 145 miles per hour, blew the front facing off in a scene reminiscent of the Wizard of Oz. And like Dorothy, my Aunt Nomi, then a girl, hit by flying debris, was rendered unconscious. 
Baby, my grandmother, having seen all was held, and cried out, She did? But as did Dorothy, the daughter returned home. The A-frame house was perched on cinder blocks, high enough for crawling under, though I never did. The void beneath the rocky soil and the house's foundation was there to protect from a cane storm surge should it come, as it did in 1928. And my granddaddy, having seen waterlogged black bodies in its aftermath, did not play bout no storms, repairing and placing his wood shutters beneath each window at the start of the storm season. In all those years growing up, as he sat beneath the family's shade tree, I never asked my granddaddy how all this and we came to be. I may have if I had understood the distance traveled. My earliest memory of him, my granddaddy, was in the clanking quiet of the near blue dawn as he busied himself in the kitchen before going to the field, moving at once slow and quick, his dark hand reaching for a mason jar of hot coffee with the look and smell of caramel. And with no word, the screen door clapped behind him, marking his departure. And with equal mysteriousness, he returned with the red-orange of the day's end. The dusty Ford truck, with the family dog serially named Brownie, accompanied him as he worked the rich soil of the family's 20-acre farm, situated halfway between the family homestead and the Atlantic Ocean, just as he had when my mother was a girl. Born 30 years after the ratification of the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolished slavery, my granddaddy sought out to make a path for himself, leaving his South Georgia family farm behind. He worked the lumberyards of St. Augustine, Florida, moving back and forth to Georgia in the years before and after the Great War. He worked stomping out cotton, though none of us grandchildren knew what this meant. And he once told my younger sister he had been on a chain gang, too, though this is something he never told any of his children. Drafted into the U.S. Army in April 1918, at the age of 23, he reported to Camp Devens in Massachusetts, rising to the rank of corporal, having, as he did, an eighth-grade education and a keen mind. He was assigned to 519th Engineers Service Battalion, a forestry division, and later the 811th Infantry Division, 
a stevedore division of colored troops trained in infantry that provided service of supply. Granddaddy said only two things about the Great War, at least to me, and that was that colored men were treated poorly and that a heap of people died from the flu. I would find out later this was the 1918 flu pandemic, which killed over 600,000 Americans and 30,000 troops in army training camps, though he never called the outbreak by name. Turns out, Camp Devins was at the epicenter of the virulent second wave of the flu pandemic in the United States. Dead bodies were stacked about the morgue like cord wood, it was reported. The blue death struck the young and healthy with a vengeance, but my granddaddy never became ill. He survived to age 91, married, had 13 children, and the Davises became. Upon his death, my granddaddy's casket was draped with the American flag. My mother made sure of this, and at his burial, a United States Army soldier played taps. The soldier's white face, a contrast to the others, showed honor and respect. The trumpet caught the sun as if a transcendent vessel. All fell quiet as we stood in a cemetery for the colored dead. But I did not think of this as the last note breathed lingered over us. As I look the photographs of Marion Post Walcott, I think of all of this and I wonder what she would have seen had she come to our street all those years ago and what we may have shown her. And what if the legend of our own photograph read, with the fancy of the possible, the rich Davises? us to the end of this episode of A Colored Girl Speaks, Meditations on Race and Other Magical Things. Your time, the listen, and your engagement are most appreciated. To connect with the essayists and a broader community of listeners, please visit the website andreahunter.com or connect with us on Twitter, A Colored Girl Speaks at I am Andrea Hunter. And subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Spotify. Until we gather again, share your stories and meditations and ask for those stories not yet given. 